You're listening to Station F, the podcast. From the world's largest startup campus in Paris. Hey, welcome to the Station F podcast. I'm Cindy Yang, and I'm super excited to have on the show today, Aaron Rasmussen, the co-founder of Masterclass and founder and CEO of Outlier.org. Aaron is a fascinating entrepreneur, inventor, and thinker, and I took it upon myself to really pick his brain as much as I could during this episode. We'll talk about how he started Masterclass and Outlier, discuss the future of education, and discover one of his many hidden passions. I promise that you won't want to miss a second of this episode, so without further ado, let's dive in. This podcast is supported by TikTok. From expressing your creativity to discovering new trends amongst diverse communities, TikTok offers infinite opportunities for you to engage with users through creative and authentic content. So what if TikTok were the asset your business needed today to thrive tomorrow? Hi, Aaron. Thank you so much for being on the show. Hi, Cindy. Thanks for having me. I don't even know where to start with all that you've built. Masterclass, Outlier, I think the list just goes on. And before that, you were in the gaming industry. Can you just give us a little bit of information on your background? So how did you start? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I'm i from the woods in eastern Oregon. So uh, I lived 12 miles outside a town of 600 people. So there's not a whole lot to do out there. Um, except sort of get into trouble and a lot of outdoors things, but also learn to program computers and play a lot of music. Um, so my whole life, I've loved technical things and artistic things. Um, and I ended up going to Boston University for computer science and mass communications with a focus in advertising. And I ended up starting a robotics company right out of school. Sold that when I was 24. I started a beverages company. And I sold that when I was 28, I think. And I did a video game about being blind, because I was, I was blind for a little while in high school after a bad accident. Um, that's actually currently being made into a feature film called Unseen by uh, Radar Pictures. And it's funny because my, my friend that I wrote that video game with is now our head of product at Outlier, um, which I'll get to that in a second. But then I did Masterclass with my co-founder, David Regier, and we built that up. And it's been just a delightful, crazy thing. And I got to use all of my skills on it, you know, sort of the creative side and the technical. Um, and then I've started Outlier, and that's what I'm doing now. And Michael Astolfi, who I made Blindside with, is the VP of product at Outlier. So it's definitely, um, you know, I've been very lucky in very many ways um, to be able to have such a varied, as my older sister calls it, career in air quotes, because it's just kind of all over the place, right? Robotics, beverages, video games, education, um, probably relevant is that um, my dad was a middle school science teacher. So, you know, I didn't have particularly good access to education growing up and kind of the, in the school system we were in, but, you know, I did have a really nice influence of just having the curiosity of the, the world around you. Is this kind of how you ventured into ed tech space? So we're going to get to outlier in just a second, but. Yeah, I've always been uh, very curious and an autodidact. So any excuse for me to learn something new and interesting, I'll take. Um, in fact, uh, I think it's, for some reason, I find it embarrassing, but I don't know how to weld. So I actually have a, a welder and a mask and gloves and everything in the garage right now. And uh, I'm going to teach myself to do that. 
Um, there's something I just really enjoy about understanding the world and, and parsing it better. So I think it was a very natural fit for me to go into education. I mean, with Masterclass, I'd, I'd spent some time you know, looking at doing actually sort of a documentary series about the origins of creativity um, with famous people. And, you know, we have a lot about, oh, this is somebody's inspiration, et cetera. But how does somebody actually produce something? Well, like when you're rewriting something, where do you put your cursor, right? Do you delete words? Do you write a separate page? And it's crazy because I actually got to learn the answers to some of this. So for example, um, when doing the Aaron Sorkin class, I asked him how he rewrote his scripts. And he said, well, um, you know, I rewrite this draft, et cetera. One, one draft I uh, just do from memory. And I was just like, wait, you rewrite a whole version of the script from memory? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, that's really fascinating. And he's like, well, what do you mean? And I was like, doesn't that seem unusual to you that you could do that? And he's like, well, yeah, but what it does is it helps me cut out anything that isn't good enough because I'm essentially lazy. I'm not willing to rewrite something from memory that isn't good enough. Totally fascinating to me because that technical aspect of how great people do the things they do um, can be incredibly useful for somebody who wants to produce themselves. So I think with Masterclass, it was very exciting for me to be able to just learn myself in my own pursuit of, of creating art and you know creating businesses, et cetera, which is in many ways a type of art. Um, and then with Outlier, it's that's a, a continuation where it is, and we can we can get into it. But you know, for for those of your listeners who aren't uh, familiar with Outlier, it's it's four credit online courses, so they're very much in depth, fully scaffolded, step by step learning calculus, learning you know, microeconomics, learning statistics, learning astronomy, and it's hard for me not to just love uh, doing that. I have, so there's something I see in common between Masterclass and Outlier is that there's a strong sense of wanting to learn from the best, right? Uh, you're learning from the greatest in their industry with Masterclass and at Outlier, you're learning with the best professors in the field, trying to recreate that experience for any student in whatever university they're in. Um, for Masterclass more specifically, how do you, like, as an early stage company, get access to all these people? I remember when I was first targeted by a masterclass ad, I think it was the Anna Wintour class on leadership. And I was like, wow, how do you even ask Anna Wintour to do something for you as an early stage company? Yeah, no, that was a big, a huge question and a huge risk for us. Because when David and I were exploring sort of what we wanted the company to be, there was a couple different options, right? One was to do just sort of better online education um, in this sort of hobby passion space. And the other was to like go to the absolute best in the world. So we thought that sounded fun. And then we spent the next seven months basically in a borrowed office space, hoping someone would work with us because we were essentially just two unknowns calling Hollywood and saying, hey, we'll, we'll make an online class that looks beautiful. And keep in mind at the time that we were making this, Online education was very much like a webcam in the back of a classroom. It wasn't high production value. There wasn't a lot of effort being put into that um, for a lot of different reasons, but it meant that it was pretty hard for people to visualize. So the way uh, one person that really helped us was Sarah Finn. She was the casting director for the Marvel movies. So she helped us understand how do you cast 
a movie, right? How do you get people involved in this? Another person that was super helpful was Bill Guttentag. He is a two-time Academy Award-winning director who not only advised us a lot, but actually filmed the first class we did, which was with James Patterson. So James Patterson is really what helped break the whole thing open. Um, and it was one of those things where it's just like throwing all these hooks out there. And he said, hey, you know, is this is this real? Come out and talk to us. So we, we flew to New York. We sat down. We explained what we uh, wanted to do with it. And he was like, great, let's do it. So we filmed the first class in a loft in Soho and also at like the Lucky Strike Bar, which is really cool. And of course, we've got this Academy Award winning director. Well, and we like shot with a drone in New York City. We really wanted to show that this was something different. Wow. And once we had that footage, I actually just cut a trailer together very quickly from it so people could see like this is something different. And then we ended up signing um, Serena Williams, Usher, uh, Dustin Hoffman, Annie Leibovitz, and then then you're off to the races, right? Because like that group of people, Serena Williams, for example, she's the number one in the world. And tennis is interesting because we have actual rankings, right? It's not like, oh, this person, this person's the best director in the world. We don't really have rankings for that. You could rank them right. by box office and this sort of thing. But what's great about tennis is we we're like, no, you know who can le learn from Serena Williams? Literally anyone in the world because she's number one. Um, so once you have that initial group, then it was crazy because we spent, you know, the first kind of 18 months before we launched just trying to get anyone to work with us. Then once we launched, we it immediately flipped and we were like turning down 98% of people coming to us. Um, and then it just kind of builds from there and builds from there. And once people see that you do really good work, they are willing to work with you. They understand that that you'll do right by their brand and you'll you know tell their story well um, and that people will enjoy it too. That's the other thing is it's not just about kind of the way you show them, but also, hey, are people going to have a good interaction with this content? So yeah, it was, I got to tell you, it was nerve wracking. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. And you must have learned so much just throughout this whole journey, you know, as the creative director and as like the CTO. And I'm curious to know what are some of the most fascinating things that you've learned actually, if you have to like just name a few. Yeah. I mean, it was fascinating because I actually directed a, a, quite a few of the early ones to set the style. And I'd never directed anything that was on that big of a set, right? I came up through viral video. That's how I marketed for my first two companies. And that's, that's where I get kind of my video skill from. So it would be insane stuff. Like I directed the Werner Herzog class myself, but the class was about filmmaking. So I would literally use things from the class the next day on set to shoot the class. Um, so one of the things that I, I loved that, that Werner said was, you know, if people understand what you're trying to accomplish with what you're filming, not just we've got to knock out these shots, et cetera, but what is the reason for all of this? And they're thinking about that on the way home. They're going to be much more excited to work and to act as a team. So I started giving a little speech about why it is we're doing what we're doing on set. And it's funny because I, I don't, you know, only do that at Masterclass. I also do that at Outlier because, you know, that's a very mission focused company. So, you know, that was one thing that I found very helpful. There was just stuff even, you know, we were working on editing the Serena Williams class and it's hard to start a startup, right? You're exhausted. It's stressful. You know, all these people believe in you and like you, you're the creative side of it. So it's just like, look, you've got to do right by all of this. It's a lot of pressure. Um, yeah. It's a lot of pressure. 
well, you know, who's really good at pressure, Serena Williams. So literally we were editing this class and there's this question that, that Bill asked, which was like, when you're down in points, how do you, how do you come back? What do you do mentally? And she was just like, you just got to focus on getting the next point and then getting the next point, which is interesting. It's actually like a type of uh, like myopia, right? Just like get that next point. And I remember that as we were coming up towards launch and we're all just like super exhausted, I would just be like, okay, we got to get that next point, get that next point. <laughs> so there's, there's a lot of the kind of mental fortitude that you learn from the classes all the way into the, the, the sort of technical and applied stuff. Usher has this great part about how silence is just an incredibly powerful part of a, a massive performance. And he breaks down sort of what he's doing on stage at one point. And it really made me use silence much more frequently, um, one in my own public speaking, but then also in the other classes. A lot of the classes were influenced by other classes that we'd taken. So yeah, so there's, I mean, I could go on forever about these. One thing I found though, was that every single one of these A players tries to make the best thing ever. There are A players for a reason. When you're working with top talent, if they say, yes, I'm going to do a masterclass, they're going to make the best version of that they possibly can. And there's something really just inspiring about how hard people are willing to work um, to do that. And it's a good lesson in, you know, they're just not being a sense of entitlement. And I think that does you know, keep you grounded as the founder of a company and, and things like this, where there's a lot of people working for you, et cetera. If you've got to jump in, you know, let's say you're directing something and water the plants so they look more lively in the background of the shot because that's you know something that needs to happen, then you got to just do it. Um, yeah. So there's there's just so much of it influenced kind of what I do professionally, but also personally. And I'm curious to know, because it sounds like master classes is super fulfilling, right? It sounds like a very enriching experience to have built a company like this and for so much knowledge and joy that you've delivered from these top level people that are so inaccessible. It's it's an incredible service, an incredible platform. Um, why did you, what kind of made you want to leave master class um, and when did it happen? If yeah. it's a question that I can ask. Yeah, yeah. So the, the goal, I mean, the goal of master class for me was, you know, really realizing this vision. And making one, I just wanted that product to exist so I could use it myself, which is actually a great reason to do a product. I'm um, <laughs> like, how does Aaron Sorkin write a TV show? I actually know that now. <laughs> you know, that's amazing. Um, and that's like one of the first things David and I talked about early on. We're like, we're you know, both fans of the West Wing. Um, so my goal, though, was I wanted to set up a company that 100 years from now would be capturing knowledge of the world's best and disseminating it you know, democratizing access to genius. And you mentioned that, you know, there's this sort of theme of sort of working with the best. Well, the question is, why can't everyone work with the best people on the planet in their field? Like, that's the amazing thing about the internet and distributed content, this sort of thing. There's no reason for that not to exist. So my hope was that 100 years from now, there would be a group of people going around, going to the people who are the you know, greatest artists, et cetera, of their time and saying, how did you do that? How do you replicate that process? And that answer is not going to be perfect. Sometimes somebody is just a really unusual talent. And it's very hard to explain. And that's fine too. 
right? There's a lot of information in that as well. So we'd gotten the company to a spot where I did feel like that was possible, right? Like, okay, a hundred years from now, this is good. We've set up the people. I was able to hire a really great VP of product, VP of engineering, uh, executive producer, right? Because I, I, was, I was running all three of those departments, right? Creative product and then also engineering. Um, and then was able to take a much needed year off um, because I, I that's it's tiring to be like directing, interviewing on set, but then also trying to fix the CSS on the homepage. So the website stays up. Um, and like, you know, it's, it's funny because in some ways I feel like I didn't learn anything from the experience of really having so much creative control because it did come out how I wanted it. You know what I mean? It's like that you, you're always supposed to learn from like, oh God, you really like burn yourself out, you know, because you wanted to do final cuts on the trailers and you wanted to like work with every little bit. I mean, we literally didn't have a studio tag audio swell when we launched because I was like, it's not there yet. I would rather have silence than something that isn't exceptional. And then a month after we got it to where we wanted, we added anyways. But then the problem is when it actually comes out the way you wanted, you're like, well, I've learned nothing except that burning myself out totally works. So anyways, so I take a year off. I ended up visiting 28 countries because, you know, I feel very lucky for the success of Masterclass. And my question was, do I do another startup? You know, so this, this is 2017. I was 33 years old. Um, and I, I was just... I wasn't sure. I know what goes into doing a startup, but I also knew that I didn't understand the world that well, right? I'd never been to India or East Africa or China um, or Eastern Europe. And I, you know, I'd traveled before that, but I felt like there's so many amazing things happening in the world that I don't have firsthand understanding of. So if I am going to do another startup, I should really understand this. Now, this is also a great excuse to just go on an adventure and learn scuba diving and like, you know, I got parasites and tore my Achilles tendon and just like, it was a complete adventure and a hundred percent worthwhile. But the thing I found was that my story of education, and I, I graduated high school early, went to Boston University, took community college courses and transferred those in to like save money. Um, my story of education, fundamentally changing my position in life is not unusual. I saw that everywhere in the world. What is unusual is access to education. Right. And that seemed like a problem to me. And I think you do get to a spot in your career where you start to look at the things maybe you didn't have growing up and you can be either resentful of them or you can go and you can try to fix them for other people. So that's where Outlier came from is let's fix this. Why can't we have the greatest classes online? You know, why does online education sort of look the way it did? Um, and the punchline to all of it is it works. You know, it's like when we when we launched the completion rates of courses were incredibly low online, you know, a few percent. And now we have completion rates equivalent to in-person college courses. How does it um, work? So you take the class online, but is your uh, schoolwork actually corrected by the teacher that is uh, presenting? Great question, because to make a highly scalable class that's very inexpensive, um, you have to really understand how do we deploy resources? And one of the most valuable resources you can have in instruction is one-on-one -on -one tutoring. It's somebody helping you through it. So there's this great educational psychologist from the 60s, Benjamin Bloom, 
And he figured out that if you one-on-one -on -one tutor a student, you get a two sigma improvement in their, uh, in their grade, basically. So you can literally take a C student and they will become an A student if you give them one-on-one -on -one tutoring. That's amazing. That's life-changing for people. So his question was, how do we provide that for more students? So he tried to figure out how to do it in a classroom using this sort of mastery learning technique. And it, it worked to some extent, right? It, it, there's a lot of great studies about it. So when we came onto the scene with Outlier, um, the first thing I did is I looked at all of the educational psychology literature because I thought that I would have to like come up with new ideas in education. Like, oh, I'm coming from Silicon Valley. I'll come up with cool new ideas on how to teach. Turns out, no, actually people have already had tons of great ideas. It's well-researched. We know how to teach people effectively. And it hasn't really been adopted in most of the educational system. So I, I called one of the authors of this book, Make It Stick, on educational psychology and said, hey, what are the things that we can do to make this effective? Um, and I'm coming all the way back around to your question here on who, who grades it, et cetera. Because what we found was there is an important human component to scalable online education. But since you want it to be scalable and you want it to be inexpensive, and our ultimate goal is globally, whoever wants to learn should be able to learn. Like already, we can take international students and we do, and it's amazing. You, you have people taking outlier courses, getting real college credits. They can transfer to you know, any university that'll accept them. Um, and since these are University of Pittsburgh credits, at least in the US, they transfer really well. Um, Why University of Pittsburgh though? Was it a strategic choice? Great question, University of Pittsburgh. And then, yeah, then I'll then I'll come all the way back around. But um, so I ended up going to Boston University uh, and saying, "Hey, I've got this idea for my next startup." You know, basically, I want to talk to the dean. I want to talk to the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences. That was like the highest thing I could think of. And the dean there was Ann Cud, and she asked me to be on her advisory board at the College of Arts and Sciences at BU. So I sat on the board for for quite some time. And she ended up getting poached to be provost of the University of Pittsburgh. And since I'd worked with her directly, I knew how committed she was to educational access. She was very, very serious about it. Um, and of course, Pitt is an excellent school. Um, you know, it's like 60, I'm going to mess up the ranking, but it's in the 60s, high 50s. It's like number one for philosophy, this sort of thing. Um, it's this excellent school, high quality credits, great faculty, um, but then also committed to educational access, right? To providing these opportunities. They have this great regional campus that we work with for our oversight called uh, Pitt-Johnstown. And they're, they're just very serious about giving a diverse group of students access to, to education. So for us, we're very mission aligned. And that's so important because you can imagine there's some universities that are very excited about excluding people. Like their whole thing is look at how many people we reject, right? We only accept 10% of people who come here. I'm like, well, I don't want to be proud of that, actually. Like our, our whole criteria for acceptance for calculus, for example, is can you pass this algebra test? If you can show that you're ready for calculus, welcome. You know, there's no other thing that we worry about. I mean, obviously, you have to pay the money at the moment, but um, it's also cheaper than, than everyone else. We charge 400 bucks. The average in the US is about 2,500. Yeah, it's a lot cheaper, I was going to say. But okay, so coming all the back, all the way back around because I should I should finish it on the the class because it's it's an enormously complex thing as you might expect the sort of pedagogy of being online. So our lectures are asynchronous, so it means we pre-record them in these sort of beautiful cinematic ways. We actually spend months and months editing them 
Um, so it's, you know, very comprehensible. The narrative is very strong and they work, right? We can tell whether or not they work and we'll change them if they're not. We have active learning. So it's like a textbook that's interactive. And then when it comes to assignments, we have, basically we choose courses that we can grade mostly in an automated way effectively. So with calculus, that's easy to do because we can do math equivalencies, et cetera. We have a math engine on the back end. For philosophy, we have essays and we actually hire uh, essay correctors with philosophy degrees that go through and correct and give feedback on the essays. Now that's, that's tricky because of the scalable side. But what we use our human capital for is actually on one-on-one -on -one tutoring and in uh, coaching. Because a lot of education comes down to motivation. For example, anyone can go to a library right now, check out a textbook on calculus, and if they stare at that thing for months, they will probably be able to learn calculus, right? You just, for free. The problem is, who's gonna do that? That's an incredibly difficult thing to do. So we've got a system of, you could go to a college, and you sit in a classroom with other people, you make friends, you work on calculus together. We do the same thing online. And that is part of what has fundamentally changed this. What's your take on online versus in-person learning? Um, because there is that human aspect, right? Um, that is quite important. Um, the connection with your teacher, the meeting, like the study groups that you form with the other students. Yeah. So one kind of important thing to understand about Outlier is our philosophy isn't that everyone should take college online. It's that it should be an option for everyone. Because especially in the US, college will just not be an option for you if you can't go to an in-person school because it's so expensive. So with Outlier, we're like, there should always be an option to get educated. Now that might mean that if you have, the, for example, if you have the means and the grades to go to Harvard, just go to Harvard. Don't, don't take Outlier courses. Harvard's a great credential. It's the top you know, education brand in the world. Um, you're going to meet a lot of interesting people. The problem is the number of people that are in a position to do that is incredibly small. So then the question is, well, do you spend tons of money to get an education somewhere else that's maybe inconvenient? You might not be able to actually keep to a schedule because maybe you have to work a job or take care of a sick parent, et cetera, et cetera. So people should have the flexibility. So Yes, I love the in-person experience. I, for my money, the top experience is the Benjamin Bloom model, one-on-one -on -one tutoring. If you have a one-on-one -on -one tutor, it is so hard to beat that system because you have a human mind modeling your human mind and your knowledge gaps that begins to know you and understand you and predictively figure out how do I alter information to get into this other person's mind? How do I make that light bulb turn on? That's amazing. Now, what's great is with online education, we can start to approach that because we can get these human minds that have spent, you know, Tim Chartier spent 20 years learning how to teach students calculus in this incredible way. And it's so, it's so like gentle, like it makes calculus the least intimidating topic, you know, and that's, and calculus is scary, you know, and it just is for a lot of people. And he just has figured out how to make it very gentle. So you have this artistry in there that is rare. I contacted 200 calculus professors trying to cast who would be our calculus instructor on screen until I found Tim. It took me three and a half months. It was a bunch of lovely conversations. I can geek out about math like anyone else. 
Tim and I talked for like two hours the first time we talked just about math teaching, et cetera. And I could tell he was, he was the person. Turns out he's actually a trained mime under Marcel Marceau. He has a lot of performance uh, background. So it makes sense that he's able to combine both mathematics and performance. So I think in-person education is super important. In fact, we don't do the second two years of college. The first two years of introductory courses, that's what we're focused on. Because those are things that people just need to know. That is your tool set. Now, as far as getting together with peers, for example, we actually put a lot of effort into that. Because we think about it a bit like working out. I hate going to the gym. I just do. I'm one of those people that does not like picking up heavy objects and putting them back down again over and over. But if I have a friend that'll come with me to the gym, suddenly I'm on board with it. That's how a lot of topics are for some people, right? Like calculus. I happen to like calculus myself. Other people, they're like, I got to just get this credit. Well, if you can get a study buddy or you can get a group of some other people together, suddenly it's amazing. That's how I made it through computer science. I had this group of four other friends that like, we just had a blast. We took all of our classes together and it made the whole experience fun. So there are elements of the in-person experience that we at Outlier are doing an unusual job in replicating. And we have a lot more to learn. You know, we started using this 2D spatial audio platform called Rambly to get all of our students together. So they're sort of socialized before class even starts. Oh, wow. Um, And this is an exciting area of research that we as a species need to spend more time on because we need to, it's not about replacing the in-person experience. It's about scaling the best parts of it, making that an option. And again, if you have the money and grades to go to Harvard, just do that. It's pretty crazy when you say that you've contacted 200 professors and nailed one down in the end. And that's just for calculus. For every single class, we we cast it. We literally will talk to, you know, we're better at it now. So sometimes we'll talk to only 50 or 100. Okay. But uh, it's still so many because yeah. here's the thing. You can have an amazing professor in person, right? Like one of those people that changes your life. True. And- Part of the reason they're good is this bi-directional communication. It's like stage acting. Stage actors don't always do well on film because there's no audience there. It's unidirectional. They're imagining that person they're acting to or you know, they're interacting with somebody on stage and you're watching. We have to find those professors that the reason they're, they're top in their field is they're good at the stage acting part, right? They're good at being in front of a class, but that it translates through video. So sometimes you'll have these top-rated professors. We get on a Zoom with them. And that's actually kind of how we partly cast. And we can tell this isn't going to, their charisma, all this specialness that they bring to the classroom doesn't come through video for whatever reason. And that's totally okay, but it means we have to keep looking. And so you just go and rate my teachers and get like all the top rated and then filter down which one works well on camera and which one does not. No. <laughs> so what's funny is we've definitely gone on rate my professors. Um, the ratings usually aren't that linked to the skill of the teacher, but the comments are super helpful. Mm. So originally we looked for innovative teachers. We'd look for specific words, like if they use spreadsheets in a, a statistics course, you know, students seem to really like that. So we talk to them. Um, we look at teaching awards. We look at YouTube videos because a lot of these really good teachers will have sort of self-selected that way or given speeches. Sure. And then the final one is network effects. So what we found is like, once you find an interesting teacher, they will have met a bunch of other ones. They give you their names. 
those people give you their names and suddenly you're talking to all of just the like greatest instructors. Hannah Fry, right, from the uh, the UK. She's, you know, extraordinary. She's on BBC all the time. Um, my head of video found her through her TED Talk. It was just like her. She's got it. She's got that X factor. She's perfect. John yeah. Urschel, we just found through the MIT grad school pages. And we were like, hey, you know, you know about sports. He's a former NFL player, um, but he's getting his PhD at MIT. Or actually, I think he's probably got it at this point. Um, also an extraordinary teacher. It must be pretty fascinating, actually, for your casting team. So they're just going through all these lectures and <laughs> seeing who's kind of the best teacher and at the same time learning about calculus all over again. Um, are you planning actually to expand beyond introductory courses? Like what's the long-term vision for Outlier? So long-term vision is really the first two years of college, which in the U.S. you can do like an associate's degree. Um, most of our students are likely going to actually only take a few classes through us, and then we like to place them in a university. So they save some money with us. They prove out their like excellent skills, and then we get them into a, a cool program. That's, that's the, the ultimate goal. What we found is that high school students love it in the U.S. They sort of found us. We, we haven't even, you know, we weren't even advertising to them. And they would do it as sort of a replacement for the APs or like the IBs. But they would take these courses, get actual college credits, and get a lot of confidence that they could do well in college. So that's actually a very fast growing part of our business is the is high school students and that's through partnerships with high schools themselves and also just directly so in the future what we'd like to do is have those first two years of college but with lots of optionality so you can you can basically like very inexpensively taste a bunch of topics you might be interested in is it musicology is it are you interested in russian history what about literature these sorts of things and the way college is so expensive right now it's very dangerous to sample too many things if you end up with huge amounts of student debt after it. And with Outlier, we'll be able to make, you know, the humanities more accessible in many ways. Yes, you should take philosophy. Everyone should take philosophy, right? It's the fundamental way of making decisions. And it's been thought about for thousands of years with a very rich history and rich methodologies. But if it's going to cost you, you know, when I was at, at BU, so, or the cost now is something like 80 grand a year. So you're talking about about $10,000 a course all in. If it costs you $10,000 to take that course, it's a lot harder of a pill to swallow than 400 bucks. Will there ever be an outlier university? That's a good question. Um, we're really happy just working with University of Pittsburgh right now um, because our focus, like one of the things that you'll see in my businesses is I tend to like to be really good at one specific thing. With Masterclass, we got really good it extracting how a master does what they do and then making that palatable and mm. interesting for people to watch. And that's it. Just do that. And that's, you, you can become exceptional at it. At Outlier, our goal is to be exceptional at making these courses. So in Outlier University, for example, a four-year degree, we never intend to do. Um, and the reason is because those upper-level courses, you want that human interaction. You want that dialogue. You want that seminar. You also want a diversity of approach in those upper level courses because we don't get the answer as a species to something unless we have a lot of people working on it with a lot of different perspectives on what it could be. So bring that, reducing that to practice. In life extension, you have sort of a camp that's sort of, uh, well, aging is from epigenetic fitness, right? The epigenetics start pulling apart. 
and another camp that says, oh, it's more mitochondrial DNA breakdown. We want students both really believing in these two possible futures of life extension than doing their graduate school work on it. Whereas with the lower level courses, with the introductory courses, we actually want the same tool set for all the students because that better prepares people to uh, you know, pursue those sort of diverse um, avenues of, of research. So that's it's it's partly philosophical, the reason we don't do a four-year degree. And the other part is just economic. We spend so much money and time right. making beautiful introductory courses. It would be very, very hard to do. I mean, it doesn't work with our business model to do that for upper-level courses because those courses should basically change every semester as content gets updated, as the, the world changes. Um, and secondly, there's just not that many students in each one. And we depend on the fact that tons of students take our courses. I think Outlier is still very much in the kind of university institution model, right? You're kind of a complement um, to the going to a university yes. model. And I think a lot of companies out there are actually exploring uh, anti-university, anti-institution model. And I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on that. Um, yeah. So, I mean, th this, is, this is a philosophical question. And what's incredible is we're going through this education renaissance. So I think the future is going to look like there's a ton of different options. You come out of high school, you could go to trade school, you could go to a boot camp, right? Which is called that an anti-university model. Um, and I, I think there's some boot camps that are more successful or make a lot more sense than others. Um, for example, I wouldn't want somebody building a bridge that came out of building bridge boot camp. I'd probably want somebody with a full engineering degree before I drove my car across that, right? So like some, some, aspects of education require a lot of education, a lot of time to, to be really competent. Whereas other parts, no, you can learn it quite quickly and, and you'll be in a good spot. So I think that when people are, my guess is that we will always have this four-year liberal arts degree. If, as long as we do our job right, you know, also at Outlier, we can help support that because that works. It's worked for a long time and giving people perspective and becoming sort of a world citizen is an important part of being a free citizen, the liberal arts, right? The, the trivium and the quadrivium. Um, so for us, our goal is within that system. However, there's off-ramps, as they call it. So you could have an associate's degree and some technical courses. So the, the state uh, university of, or state of Georgia university system is doing this interesting thing where you basically do a two-year degree and then you have some cybersecurity specialty courses. And then you come out and you're ready to go into the workplace with a cybersecurity course. So the big philosophical question to all of this is, what is the purpose of education? Right? This is what makes education so difficult. Because there's two questions for me in education. How do we learn? And what do we learn? Now, how do we learn is a lot of what you know, outliers sort of working on. How do we make it easier to learn online, less expensive? You can imagine in the future, it's just like the matrix. You just plug your head into it and you learn it. Great. But then there'll <laughs> still be the question of what do we learn? And the reason the question, what do we learn? What do we include in a curriculum? What should you learn after high school? Is because it begs the, class, the question, what are you learning it for? Is it to get a good job? Is it to further artistic uh, pursuits? Is it to further scientific innovation and inquiry? Is it to explore the stars? Is it, what is it for? Is it for simply the intrinsic value of learning? I mean, you've probably got a sense of that from me. I just enjoy learning, 
right? Now, I also enjoy it for purpose, making companies, et cetera. But I also just, I don't know, I, I talked to a hairdresser, you know, a couple of years back, I remember just about um, like, uh, what's it called? Like magazine, like artistic hairstyles. Totally fascinating. Not really sure what I'm going to do with that information. It's just fascinating to talk to somebody with an in-depth understanding of a topic and just broaden your perspective. So what is the purpose of education? And the reason that question is so hard is because it begs the question, what is the meaning of life? Why are we here? And that's why when it comes all the way back to what should I take in college, you're really asking what is the meaning of life, which is terrifying. That is staring into the void. And by the way, my, my suggestion on this, because I never really knew what I wanted to do, is just do interesting stuff in the meantime. Like you'll, you'll ultimately figure it out. Just go towards stuff that, that you appreciate. But this is why this sort of anti-university model I find very concerning because universities for many years encompassed many pursuits, right? So like becoming a professor, yes, that, that is an employment, but it's also a nod to furthering academia, to furthering inquiry and analysis and all these incredible parts of being human. And if you strip that all away and say it's just for the job, we're going to lose a lot. Now, what's great is when you lower the price of education, you don't have to ask that question so strongly. If, you're, if your undergrad costs $250,000, $400,000, you better be pretty sure about what job you're going to get to pay that back because that is scary. However, if it costs, you know, for us, and we, we give discounts and stuff, but if you're to pay full price, it would be $3,200 a year for outlier. That's suddenly a much smaller risk. You could like really quote unquote mess up and take all these courses you enjoy that turned out to not be that relevant to your, you know, whatever specific job you got out of college and you wouldn't be paying for it for the next 30 years like many of the people, at least in the US are. So yeah, so like I said, that's a deeply philosophical question of, of where this all ends up. I, I think your answer just exploded our tech and entrepreneurship uh, oriented podcast into something um, a lot bigger <laughs> than what we set out to talk about. But this is great. Before we wrap up, can we talk about your TikTok? Um, you have over 130,000 followers on the platform. How do you do this while simultaneously building immensely successful companies? So, yeah. So TikTok has been a really fun thing for me because... Um, you know, I think at heart, uh, there's a lot of art in what I do. And the problem is when you do uh, a company, that is your commercial art. It should be modulated by the consumer. You should be making something that somebody likes. So if you also are the type of person who's an artist that needs to create art for yourself, it's good to have an outlet for that. So it doesn't like weirdly influence your company. So I actually uh, thought it would be fun to put up a TikTok video of me just fixing this broken fox sculpture using a wabi-sabi technique called kintsugi, where you sort of fill the cracks in something with gold to highlight its imperfections rather than to somehow, you know, hide them or even shame them. You want to show that the wearing of something in the world is part of it. And there's a beauty in that as well. And I just put up this little video of it and it got like, you know, I think a million and a half views or something. It was quite a lot. Um, and you know, my first 10 or 20,000 followers. And since I've just been making art around my house and I do these little videos about it and they're really 
they're, they're so much fun for me to do, but they're really just for me, right? They're, they're, that original video was something I actually just made to send to my family and like post it on Instagram, this sort of thing. And what I do is I basically, I've made a, a little sculpted um, spherical keyboard and I learn how to use stuff in the process of doing it. I'd never used an angle grinder and I had to use an angle grinder to cut this stainless steel sphere. I'd also never built a keyboard from scratch. And I built a keyboard from scratch. Um, I took a murder hornet recently, which is a giant uh, Asian hornet, which has been seen in Washington state where I live and learned how to do uh, pinning of an insect. I bought it from uh, Mickey Alice Quapis. She's a taxidermist online. And then I made a custom display for it. So I have just been thoroughly enjoying making these little videos on TikTok. And it turns out that people have been enjoying them too. Now, the funny thing is I actually only come out with one of these videos once or twice a month. And, you know, there's all these sort of ideas that you have to do TikTok every day or three times a day or this sort of thing. And it turns out that um, you can also build a following on it just sort of doing what you want, because it turns out there's other people that enjoy what you like doing also. Do you want to tell us your TikTok handle, Aaron? <laughs> sure. I My TikTok handle is at Aaron, Aaron, talk, talk, T-O-K, T-O-K. Um, so it's just my first name awesome. twice, then talk, talk. Probably should have thought that through a little better, but uh, that's what I got now. <laughs> awesome. Followed. Great. Um, to wrap it up, Aaron, because I know we're almost up our time. At Station F, so we mostly have early stage entrepreneurs. Um, and so for early stage entrepreneurs, uh, whatever they're building or trying to reinvent education, do you have any tips to share that could be a good piece of wisdom to take home? Ooh, it's it's hard to sum it up, but um, you know, th there are so many aspects to the job of, of changing something. Um, but one thing to keep in mind is pretty much everybody who does startups is going to be working hundred percent of the time, right? Everybody's going to be working super hard. That's likely not going to be a problem for you. The question is prioritizing your time. And it always is because you could conceivably be working hundred percent of the time on the wrong thing and you will not ultimately succeed. Um, so getting really um, specific about what you prioritize and narrowing that focus, which you've heard me talk about before, can be one of the most important things. Um, do a few things and do them well. How did you do that? How did you know what you wanted to prioritize? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great question. It's, it's a learned skill. Um, but it does come down to, for example, with Outlier, the original version of Outlier, I had about 100 different product ideas to make education better. And we realized we're only going to get like three into it. So I've got to cut out 97% of all the ideas I had. So I actually did that by doing focus groups with college students, high school students, talking to people about it, talking to great professors and instructors and high school teachers, helping other people like sculpt. What is, what is interesting? What are the spiky things of this little like glob of ideas? Where are these protrusions that are very exciting to people? Now let's go with that, but don't throw out the other stuff. Keep that keep that with you because eventually you'll be able to draw from it. In general, founders have way more, and it depends on the type of founders, but the, the there's way more ideas than there is time to execute on it. So the second thing is um, emotional health, mental health is a resource. So put energy and time into that for both you and your team. Um, a team is just a group of people deciding to pursue the same objective at the same time. 
That's all a company is, right? Outlier. We're just literally a bunch of people in random rooms over Zoom trying to make access to education. So as a person, you have sort of this set of emotional health. And sometimes you spend some of that, let's say if you're crunching on a project. So remember to let people recuperate that, including yourself. You know, you wouldn't want to run on a broken ankle, um, especially if your goal is to be a professional athlete. So being a, being a founder, you are now sort of a professional athlete of your mind. So treat your mind the way a professional athlete treats their body. Give it rest, be kind to it. Don't abuse it when it's broken because things just happen to you in your regular life. You know, your cat could die and it maybe you're really attached to your cat. That's not separate from your business life. That's also taking some of that, that, uh, that resource that's so valuable. Aaron, I think that's a super inspiring note to end on. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Cindy. All right. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in today. This episode is supported by TikTok, and this is also the last episode that I will be guest hosting for the season, but will continue producing the show. Our usual host, Station F director Roxanne Varza, will be back in the next weeks with a very, very special guest. Until then, and as always, if you liked this episode, make sure to give us many, many stars. And if you'd like to suggest a topic or a guest, please don't hesitate to reach out to us on Twitter or at Cindy at StationF.co. We're available on all your usual podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and Deezer. So make sure to follow us to not miss any of our upcoming episodes. See you soon.